Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. Way through our series called The Way, this is our Lenten series that we've been in for a few weeks now, and today, kind of the word, the theme is forgiveness. Manuel mentioned that earlier. I'm going to get us into this by reading from Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, and it's on page 973. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat, And go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to man. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. I want to begin with a story. It's not an actual account of a particular event in a specific person's life. Rather, it is more of a composite. It's a hypothetical Composite, though it is based on a very common experience many people have. In fact, in my years of pastoral ministry, I have encountered some version of this story, I think, more often than anything else. I might even go so far as to say most people have a variation of this story. I certainly have my version. It goes something like this, and just to qualify, if your name is Tom... Don't take this to be me trying to tell you something. It's the first name I thought of, so don't be offended. Or be offended. It doesn't really matter to me. Either way. Tom grew up in a family where, like all families, there was some good to it and there was some not so good. Early in his life, long before he was consciously aware of what was happening, for reasons he can't, couldn't probably name at the time, he felt now and then uneasy. In his own skin. At times in his early uh, days of life, he was unsure of himself. He worried that he wasn't smart enough in school. Occasionally he worried he wasn't good enough in sports. He worried he wasn't popular enough with girls. There was this thing he couldn't quite put his finger on. It was as though something was broken in him or flawed. He never felt whole. He often felt like something was permanently damaged in him and it could not be fixed. He worked really hard to convince his mom and his friends and most especially his father that he indeed had what it took. He went out of his way to convey this image of being competent and being capable. He worked hard to demonstrate he was indeed worthy of his friends and family and father's adoration and friendship and love and applause. But in his own head and in his own heart, he frequently 
wondered. And even today, he still wonders. Now, today, many years later, he has a little bit better idea of the various events and experiences in his early life and how they affected him. But the uncertainty of who he is still eats away at his soul. It occasionally agitates him. It occasionally makes him impatient with those closest to him. His chaotic interior world frequently exhausts him. And there's a lot of time and a lot of energy and sometimes a lot of words and interaction that revolve around his chaotic interior world. So it not only exhausts him, it often exhausts those around him who have to deal with him. Along the path of Tom's life, he made some choices he still regrets. Some decisions he made, sometimes decades ago, he wishes he could go back in time and reverse. Those choices haunt him. He acted selfishly in whatever way, and it hurt those closest to him. And so for a host of reasons, Tom frequently experiences guilt and shame and regret from his past. We might say he has a reservoir of guilt and shame and regret And it is deep within him, way down at the level of the soul. Also, somewhere along the path of Tom's life, God found him. And Tom experienced God's grace. And ever since then, he's heard maybe a thousand sermons on grace and maybe a thousand more on forgiveness. And as a Christian, these ideas matter to him and he gets them at least at some level. When he hears of God's love and forgiveness, he believes it. At least at some level. He knows it. At least at some level. But those haunting voices linger. They go something like this. Are you sure God loves even the likes of someone like you? The guilt and the shame from those past sins linger. He carries the baggage of those bad choices. He feels the weight of his mistakes. He sometimes feels like a mistake. He knows, at least in his head, that God forgives him. He believes God forgives him, sort of, in his head. But this belief has not reached down into his guts. And so a good portion of Tom's life is a back-and-forth battle between what he so desperately wants to believe about himself and what he feels like he is. A battle between what he so desperately wants to believe about God and about God's love and forgiveness and what he actually believes about his own guilt and his own shame and his regrets. Not too many people know about Tom's inner conflict, and he prefers it that way. He prefers not many know. What Tom does not realize, however, is the way these various wounds and scars and regrets over the years and slowly and gradually have taught him how to keep his wife and his family and his children and his friends and even God himself at arm's length. He knows how to keep them at bay. He knows how to keep them out here somewhere. So they're nearby, but they're still far enough away so he can manage them, and most especially, they're still far enough away so he can protect himself from any pain they might willingly or unwillingly cause him. So his family and his friends in one sense know him, but in another sense, they really don't know him. 
Now, out of the story, you may have your own variation of the story. And so I'd like for a few minutes for us to think about forgiveness. And in particular, God's deep forgiveness. In particular, the work that God wants to do, not here, the work that God wants to do deep down in the soul, where things are etched and carved and sculpted and have been for a long time, and we have sought many times perhaps to surrender them, but they linger and they hang on. The challenge some of us have is to receive the forgiveness God offers, to let go of the past, and to live in the freedom of God's forgiveness. So let's begin by talking about Jesus' unique authority. Our scripture reading is part of a larger section in the Gospel of Matthew, where the author is trying to establish Jesus' unique authority. He's not just another voice. He's not just another religious teacher. Matthew is actually working overtime to drive home the idea that this Jesus has unique authority. Matthew's gospel was written to demonstrate to his predominantly Jewish audience that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament promise of a coming Messiah. Jesus fulfills then what Adam failed to fulfill, and Jesus fulfills what the nation of Israel failed to fulfill. And this is why Matthew's gospel is so packed with Old Testament references. It is as though Matthew is saying, remember this promise way back in the prophets? Well, it is now fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. Matthew is setting out to convince his readers that the promises made to the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament are now fulfilled in the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Jesus then has authority unlike any other that has walked the planet because he is the one God has sent to redeem Israel and to redeem the whole world. So let's think about this idea of authority. Authority is an interesting concept to think about. Because many of us really do not like authority. We don't like someone having authority over us. Let me give just a rather hypothetical example. Let's say that in this case, since we've used the name Tom, we'll call this person Mike. And let's just say that uh, every now and then, the person that Mike is married to, who shall remain nameless, will say to him, this is all hypothetical, but will say to him, uh, would you mind taking the garbage out? And in Mike's very strange mind, he's thinking, it doesn't really matter if I mind or not, I don't think. In fact, this isn't really a question. Would you mind taking the garbage out? What this is in Mike's twisted head, this is an issue of authority. This is an issue of being told something to do and that stubborn kind of moment of which authority will win out is in the mix. Another example. As I mentioned, we were in Italy a few weeks ago. We went to the Vatican. We took a tour of the Vatican Museum. It's this big, massive tour, and it's like thousands of people in a MRI machine for thousands. There's no way out. There's no exit. It's a long hallway from like here to the new Rayleigh's, as we always call it. Just, it's not so new, but we call it that anyway. But it's a long way away. And you just get in this line, and there's thousands of people, and you can't escape and whatnot. So I'm going through this, and my back was hurting because it's 
uh, triggered by walking and standing. Finally, we came out into St. Peter's Basilica, and I saw this little ledge against this back wall, so I went and I just leaned against it just to get some relief, and I look over and there's this woman leaning against the same shelf, and telepathically we told each other, we have bad backs and this is what people with bad backs do. And as I was getting there and finding a little bit of relief, all of a sudden this young guy, whose ego was elevated by the uniform he wore, at least I thought so, he promptly came over and shook his head and said, no, 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 you can't lean here. Suffice it to say, at that point, Mike was reaching the outer limits of his own spiritual formation. (laughs) Interesting thing, this thing we call authority, power, influence, thank you. So in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 22, and this is part of that larger section I was referring to a moment ago, that is the context of this Matthew 9 that is our scripture reading. In Matthew 8, verse 22, Jesus says to his disciples two words. He says, follow me. And in one sense, it was a typical invitation, a common invitation of a rabbi in the first century speaking to his apprentices or to his followers and inviting them to follow him and he would show them the way to life. But in another sense, it is an audacious invitation that really only makes sense if Jesus is actually worth following. I mean, if he is just another dude dispensing flowery teachings, he might be worth listening to for a few minutes on the way to work, but he's not worth following. Especially when following Jesus in those days was to be taken literally as in, I'm going to go over here and I want you to come with me. Even if you coming with me pulls you away from your job, your family and your responsibilities. That's Matthew 8.22. Follow me. Matthew 8.23 is the story of Jesus getting into a boat to cross to the other side of the lake. And out on the lake, you may be familiar with this, a storm kicks up and the disciples start to panic. They're afraid the ship's going to capsize and they're all going to drown. And the whole time Jesus is sound asleep below the deck. So they rush to wake him up and he rebukes his followers for he says they have, quote, little faith. He then turns And he speaks to the raging sea, and he calms it down. And the disciples watched all this happen, and they're amazed by what they see. In fact, they say, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. So get this. Jesus speaks to the wind, and he speaks to the waves like a parent speaks to an unruly child who is throwing a tantrum in Target. Jesus tells nature to knock it off. And nature knocks it off. That's authority. That's power. And Matthew wants us to know that this Jesus who has invited us to follow him has unique authority over the force of nature. But then Matthew goes on. When Jesus gets to the other side of the lake, two demon-possessed men confront Jesus. And these two guys were known throughout the area as being very violent and very loud. And so people avoided going near them because they were afraid of what these two guys would do. And these two demon-possessed men asked Jesus, What do you want to do with the Son of God? Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? And Jesus responds with one single word. He looks at them and he says, Go. And the demons fled into a herd of pigs, and the pigs went over the side of a hill and all died in the lake. And these two men were free. 
That's authority. So Jesus does not just have authority and power over nature. He has unique authority over the unseen spiritual realm and over the powers of evil. So this is not your ordinary teacher or leader or rabbi. There's a power in this man that is unmatched. You see what Matthew's doing. He's trying to build a case with us. So then we come to our scripture reading. Jesus goes back to his hometown and the friends of a paralyzed man bring him to Jesus on a mat. And in Luke and Mark's version, these friends are so determined they cut a hole in the roof of a crowded house where Jesus is, and they lower this guy down in front of Jesus. And in those days, physical sickness was more than just a debilitating physical condition. In those days, sickness meant something was wrong in a person's soul. Sickness was thought to mean a person was under a curse from God. They'd done something, or a parent had, to offend God in some way, and so they were being punished, Hence the physical sickness. The friends of this man brought him to Jesus because they believed Jesus could help. And the passage says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, take heart, your sins are forgiven. And we may not get this just by reading it, but in saying your sins are forgiven, Jesus stirs a gigantic pot by announcing that based on this paralytic's faith in him, his sins have been forgiven. Now, we may step back. This may seem rather insignificant to us. It may certainly seem secondary to the amazing, miraculous event of Jesus healing this paralytic, as the story goes on to say. Forgiveness may not seem like that big of a deal to us. It may seem like one of those religious things, but not really a life-changing thing. Not really that big of a deal. I mean, hate to say it, but who really cares if this guy's sins are forgiven? But notice what is happening. Matthew is making a point for us to see. Jesus has asserted his authority over nature. Jesus has asserted his authority over the unseen spiritual realm and the evil powers in that unseen spiritual realm. And now Matthew is making the astounding claim that Jesus even possesses the authority and the ability and the power to forgive human sin. Not just a particular sin, not just this or that specific sin, but Jesus can forgive one's sins and he can eradicate the influential power of sin over one's life. He can, in other words, reverse the effects of the sin nature that resides in every single human being. He can liberate people into a new way of living where they are free once again to actually Choose life and choose goodness and choose love. So again, we may not see the big deal, but this was an outlandish claim because every good Jewish person in that crowd on that day knew that only Almighty God himself had the power and the authority to forgive people of their sins. Do we see what Matthew's trying to say? About this Jesus. The teachers of the law watch all this unfold, and Matthew says they think to themselves, This guy's blaspheming. In Mark and Luke's account of the story, they think, Who can forgive sins 
but God alone. They think all this to themselves. This guy is blaspheming, they think, because he's claiming to do what only the Almighty God himself can do. So who does he think he is? And in what strikes me as rather hilarious, as these proud religious leaders are thinking all this, Jesus, who reads body language and he reads facial expressions and he knows their thoughts and he can see deep into their souls, he says, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? I mean, it had to be rather intimidating to be standing there thinking suspicious thoughts about Jesus and suddenly he confronts the suspicious thoughts you have been thinking about him. Jesus has unique authority over nature. He has unique authority over the unseen world and the evil powers in the unseen world. But he also has the authority and the power of Almighty God to actually forgive sin. His reach extends all the way down into the fundamental problem of human life. He has authority over sin and authority over its destructive influence in the human soul and on the human soul. See, Jesus is claiming to be God by claiming to be able to do what only God can do. Now keep in mind, there's no formal forgiveness ceremony here, no temple sacrifice being made for sin. Jesus is not saying to these guys, if you accept me into your lives, I will forgive your sins, you will go to heaven when you die, and until then, keep looking at your wrist and think WWJD, and then all will be well. No formula like that. He sees their trust, and he declares the paralytic's sins are forgiven, but he's not finished. He asks the religious leaders who are suspicious of him, which is easier, to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. Think about that. Of course, it's easier to say, your sins are forgiven. Why? Because the statement can't be verified. It's a lot harder to say, get up off that mat and walk. Why? Because this will be immediately validated or invalidated by virtue of what the guy does. And Jesus knows all of this perfectly well, so he says this great thing. He says, to show you I have authority to do the hard thing, forgive your sins, I'm going to do the easy thing, and I'm going to heal this guy. He looks at the guy and he says, get up, take your mat, and go home. What's the word? The word is authority. The word is power. And the man gets up, and he walks away, And Matthew says the crowd praised God who had given such authority to man. Now, with stories like this, we are really bumping into C.S. Lewis's famous conclusion. Based on what Jesus said and based on what Jesus did, he is either a liar or he's a lunatic or he is the Lord of all. Let's talk for a minute about forgiveness as freedom. So Jesus forgives sins. Let's just say what perhaps we're thinking. Okay, I get it. It's important. But really, so what? What's the impact of this 
for our lives in 2019, does it really matter so much? See, these days, the idea that God forgives sins can go in one ear and out the other ear. First, because people are increasingly questioning whether or not there even is such a thing as sin that needs to be forgiven. But second, and maybe closer to home, God's forgiveness goes in one ear and out the other ear because it, get re- it gets reduced to a line in a well-known religious formula. And once we have the formula memorized, we got it, so to speak. So forgiveness is another one of these religious head games. It gets reduced to that. God loves me, sent Jesus to die for me. I accept Jesus. I believe he did all that. So my sins are forgiven and my future is secure. And there is truth in this great declaration. But to some degree, in some ways, many times, it all stays up here. And it all stays out here. It's not much in here. It doesn't get down here. We're talking about things. We're talking about theories. We're talking about issues we happen to agree with. There was a Jesus. He did die. Had something to do with sins. And I declare that I think that's true. So now I get some of it. But it doesn't get down in here. It doesn't get into the guts. It doesn't reach into Tom's deep reservoirs of guilt and shame and regret. It doesn't contradict all the old tapes playing in Tom's head about being unlovable or about being a failure or about not being enough. Jesus had a habit of hanging out with unsavory characters. He had a habit of going into their homes. And as the door of their home would close, the religious people's eyebrow would raise. He had a habit of sitting at the tables of unsavory characters and eating meals with them. And when he was confronted about this, he simply said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus can't do much with those who think they are righteous. It is really important for us to camp on this for a second. Jesus can't do much with those who think they are righteous or not that bad, or better than most. He can't do much with those who are unaware of their own disease. He can't do much with those who think they're better than fill in the blank. He can't do much with Tom until Tom stops running. He can't do much with Tom until Tom opens up his guts and his soul and invites the Spirit of God down into those places. He can't do much with Tom until Tom decides he's tired of pretending. See, the arrival of the kingdom of God in the person of Jesus brings with it the forgiveness of sins. And so forgiveness of sins is one of the signs that the kingdom of God is breaking loose. The power of the kingdom of God is demonstrated by Jesus' power and authority to forgive sins and by Jesus' power and authority to break the power of sin, to liberate us from the inevitable way of sin, to change the way life is right now, to change the way Tom is right now, all the way down in the depth of his guts and in the depth of his soul. To change the way a marriage is right now. To change the way a family is, a church is, to change a town, to change a business, a community, 
and a, and, and a city and a nation. Real authority, real power to get way down into the bottom of the bucket and change us right now. So Eugene Peterson, in his beautiful version of the Bible that he calls the message, writes in, uh, in, as he interprets Romans chapter 8 and verses 1 through 4, this idea of forgiveness getting way down deep. He puts it this way in Romans 8, uh, verses 1 through 4. With the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, that fateful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ being here for us, being here for us, no longer have to live under a continuous, low-lying black cloud. A new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a faded lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. God went for the jugular when he sent his own son. He didn't deal with the problem as something remote and unimportant. In his son, Jesus, he personally took on the human condition, entered the disordered mess of struggling humanity in order to set it right once and for all. The law code, weakened as it always was by fractured human nature, could never have done that. The law always ended up being used as a band-aid on sin instead of a deep healing of it. And now what the law code asked for but we couldn't deliver is accomplished as we, instead of redoubling our own efforts, simply embrace what the Spirit is doing in us. And what he's talking about is the Spirit of the living God going all the way down into your story and mine and bringing actual healing and actual redemption because this one we follow has the authority and the power to make it so. Theologian N.T. Wright, describing and talking about forgiveness of sins, puts it this way. Forgiveness is what happens when someone realizes that they've done something they shouldn't and turns in penitence to God and says sorry. Well, yes, that is true, and it matters more than I can say, but forgiveness of sins was never simply a random individualistic concept. For any first century Jew, it was much bigger. It involved the whole notion of a people in exile because of their sins so that when God forgave them at last, this would mean the restoration of national fortune. And when the early church announced forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus Christ, this didn't just mean that individual sinners could get right with God. Though, of course, it did mean that. Forgiveness was a whole program, a whole way of life. The new covenant way of life, in which the restoration which God offered to all who believed in Jesus was to characterize families and communities, worldviews, and life paths. A jubilee movement that, whenever it came upon anything amiss in human relations or society, would move heaven and earth to put it right, to restore things to the way they should be. Forgiveness of sins, restoration, Forgiveness of sins, reconciliation. Forgiveness of sins, the healing of fractures. Forgiveness of sins, moving down into the depth of your life and story, all the way down to the bottom, all the way into the past, all the way down toward those things that wounded, that scarred, that hurt, that harmed, that shaped, that influenced, 
before you were conscious of it happening. And what we are being told is that this God we follow wants to move all the way into those things and bring healing and restoration and wholeness. So lastly, let's talk about receiving forgiveness. Some of us have lugged around the memory of past sins for a long, long time. For some of us, Tom's story is the tip of the iceberg to our story. For we know the power of guilt and shame. We know the heavy burden of shame. We know the deeply encoded idea, it's etched into our soul that we are no good. And we battle that. This idea that we are unlovable, we've struggled with that for a lifetime. This idea that we are unacceptable, unforgivable, unwanted, unpursuable, not enough, never good enough, never will be good enough. And all of this lingers and remains even though we have put our confidence in this one Jesus. Eugene Peterson's stunning words, because Jesus has the authority to forgive people like Tom, quote, no longer have to live under a continuous, low-lying black cloud. A new power is in operation. Using N.T. Wright's beautiful vision, when the early church announced forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus Christ, this didn't just mean that Tom could get right with God, though of course it did mean that. Forgiveness was a whole program, a whole way of life, a new covenant way of life in which the restoration which God offered to all who believed in Jesus was to characterize families and communities, worldviews, and life paths. See, forgiveness is a big deal because it opens the way for a new kind of life. The guilt, the shame, the fracture, the distance, those haunting ideas that have been scratched into your soul of being unlovable, of being unacceptable, of being unforgivable. That's where the healing power of Jesus' forgiveness can set us free. Because unlovable, unacceptable, guilt, shame, those are all lies. And they are eradicated by the authority of Jesus who looks into the deepest regions of our darkened souls and says, daughter or son, your sins are forgiven and a whole new way is open to you. And yet so much of the challenge, as many of you know, So much of the challenge is for us to receive this forgiveness and receive the freedom God offers us for a long, long time. And I've shared this with you many times over the years. For a long, long time, I believed what my guilt and shame said about me more than I believed what God said about me. It's something we have to think about. For a long, long time... I have stood here and I have used what's in this book to talk about what is true about you and about me based on what God says. I've talked about how God's love, we can be safe and secure in God's love. But for many, many years of saying that, the truth was I believed what my guilt and shame told me more than I believed what this told me about who I was 
because of Christ. This is how ferocious these things are. This is how embedded these things get. These kinds of things get etched into our soul. They get embedded into our soul. They get carved into our soul. Important and influential people in our lives did whatever they did or didn't do whatever they were supposed to do. And as a result, these are the wounds and the grooves and the scars that got cut into us. And it is only the living Christ who has the authority and has the power to set us free from those scars and from those wounds. See, we don't have to carry all this around. We don't have to live under the dark cloud of guilt and shame. We don't have to keep wondering if our sins are forgiven. And for many, you've carried this for a long time. And sometimes, in order to get at these things, we can't just think it. We can't just rehearse stuff we've heard a thousand times before. Sometimes, in order to get at these things, we have to take some risks. We have to do stuff that's a little bit uncomfortable for us to do. We have to, if you will, get out of our chair and move and trust the Spirit to meet us in the movement. If you will, we have to cut holes in roofs to get in front of the only one who can heal us down at the level of the soul. And so we want to finish our time today by giving you a time to do this if you want to. This isn't time for individual response, which means if you want to, there will be an opportunity to respond. And if you don't, you shouldn't feel pressure to respond. But there is a phenomena that many of us are familiar with, and it's what we've been trying to get uh, to poke at a little bit today, that sometimes deep within us, long after, We have given ourselves to Christ and followed him. There are things that are burned into us. Wounds, scars, reservoirs of guilt, reservoirs of shame, memories of old sins, regrets from old choices. And they lodge into us. And we want to give some time to let the Spirit of God deal with those things. So we're going to give you two ways to respond. One is, on either side of the stage, there are some stations that we've been using throughout this series. And in particular today, there is some paper there that you can write down, perhaps, the sin that haunts you. Or the phrase that is burned into you about unlovable or unacceptable. Or whatever the issue is, or whatever the per- whoever the person was that cuts you deeply that you would like to put on that paper. And then there's a little bowl of water there. You put that paper in the water and that paper will disappear. Perhaps the visual of it will remind you of Jesus' authority to heal and forgive at deep levels. A second way to respond, though, is this. There will be people, five of them, three over on this side and two over on that side, They'll be standing there, and they are there for one reason, and that is to pray with you if something has been stirred up today as we've been together. It's possible that uh, you want to go to somebody as part of this taking of a risk and simply go to them and ask for prayer, or maybe go to them and tell them a little bit about what plagues your soul, or maybe go to them and tell them a lot about what plagues your soul. Be specific about the guilt, perhaps. Name the shame, perhaps, or not. Just to say, would you pray for me? Well, they're going to be there to pray for you. This will take a little bit of courage on your part. It will take a little bit of a risk, 
But I want to urge you to give some consideration. Listen to the voice of the Spirit. And if He's calling you, if He's stirring in you, if He's beckoning you, I encourage you to respond. Melby's going to sing as we move into this. It's possible that you just simply want to contemplate the words she's singing. They were written by somebody, I assure you, who understands exactly what we've been talking about today. Songs like this don't get written by people whose experience with God is in their head. So Spirit of God, as we simply take some time to invite you to linger and move among us, to recognize, we recognize that there are folks who have carried stuff their whole life. And we simply invite you to move among us, to prompt whatever response you would have from us. And through this, through our action, through our movement, through the prayers of those we go to, that you would be so kind and gracious that your spirit would move in the deep places. That he would move down where wounds are, where guilt lives, where the cauldron of shame is, those reservoirs of hurt, Jesus' name.